Good morning, Arcadia. How you doing? Okay. That's about right. <laughs> well, great to see you. My name is Frank. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors. I'm, I'm uh, usually the guy you'll see here on Sunday morning. Um, maybe every uh, fourth or fifth Sunday, you'll see our pastoral resident, Sean Myers, uh, the young guy with more energy than me. Um, so just know that he'll be coming up again probably before the end of the year at some point. Um, we are in Romans chapter 7, so if you have your Bibles or your apps, uh, you can go there. Uh, in the meantime, uh, while you're doing that, what I'd like to do is, is just update you on three things that are happening in our community that you should know about. First of all, um, as many of you know, uh, about twice a year, we, uh, are, we are part of a, something called the Creighton Coalition of Churches, and twice a year, we go into the schools and uh, do projects and help them and serve them. And uh, we do that on a Saturday morning, uh, and we did that yesterday. Uh, and then the following Sunday, after that, we always have an uh, all-Creighton Coalition uh, of Churches uh, worship service at Camelback Bible Church. Uh, and so that'll be tonight from 6.30 to 7.30. Uh, be one hour, and then uh, after the service, uh, Stephanie from Redemption is going to be, Redem- Redemption Arcadia is going to be getting us the, the kind of some snacks and some stuff to eat afterwards, so... Uh, we would encourage you to be at that tonight at Camelback Bible Church there at 40th Street and Stanford. Uh, and then uh, coming up this Friday night is a big night for us. Uh, we talked about this last week. Uh, Sean Johnson, who leads our music, he was just up here, uh, and his uh, worship team, his music team, uh, have been putting together a CD of a lot of the music that they do on Sunday mornings. This has actually been something that's been requested by a number of the people that attend here, uh, in fact. And they've put that together. And uh, we're going to have sort of a digital CD release party on Friday night right in here in this room uh, from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock. It'll be music only. uh, And uh, if you come, you'll get a a card that'll explain to you how you can download for free uh, all of the songs uh, that have been recorded. And in about another month or so, uh, we're going to have the hard copy CDs for you as well. Those we are not going to sell. We are going to give them to you as a gift, and you can take them and give them uh, to other people, sort of let them know about uh, Redemption Arcadia and our, and our music here and all that. But the, uh, the party, the release party, is going to be uh, here on Friday night at 6 o'clock, and then at 7 o'clock when it's over, we're going to have uh, frozen yogurt out in the lobby. So we'll have, I don't know, three or four flavors of yogurt, and then 150, to- or maybe 16 toppings we'll have for you. We've done this in the past for other events. It's very popular. People love it. And uh, so we're going to have that as, as well. So that's Friday night. Uh, I will tell you that <clears throat> there's a number of our redemption communities who have decided this week, instead of meeting for their regular redemption community, they're going to do that instead and come on uh, Friday night. So just to plant that thought in your mind. And then also one, uh, one other thing. Uh, we always have a Thanksgiving Eve service, and this is not a trick question, but some people get confused. Uh, what day is Thanksgiving Eve? Wednesday. It's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, yeah. It's November 27th this year, and from 6 to 7, we will have a Thanksgiving Eve service in here. This year, though, we're going to have food. We're not going to have heavy food. We assume that you will have heavy food on Thursday. We are going to have light food on Wednesday night. 
uh, from 6 to 7, we're going to set up two long tables that will have just some light food, and we're going to sit together in fellowship and have a meal together, sing a few songs together. We're going to have a, an acoustic guitar player walking around leading us in, in a couple of songs, and then we will, as we always do, share Thanksgiving testimonies. Uh, why are you thankful? And it's a great time of community. It's a great time uh, to be together. So please uh, be here for that as well. That'll be from 6 to 7 on Wednesday, November 27th. So uh, you're up to date on what's going on in the community. Let me pray and we will get into Romans chapter 7. God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And now as we, as we open it up, we proclaim your gospel and we teach what, what you have to say to us uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit through Paul's life. We pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds uh, not only so that we would learn, but also so that we could apply this to our lives and we would, we would know what to do with it and we would understand uh, better our relationship with you through your Son and how to live. So God, do that please. I pray that the Holy Spirit would move in the, in the hearts and the minds of the people who are here this morning. And God, as always, that you would somehow move me out of the way so that you could speak clearly and that it would be the power of your word and the administration of, the Holy, of that word by the Holy Spirit in the people's lives this morning. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we spent six weeks in, cha- in chapter 6, and now we move on to chapter 7. And I just want to kind of give you, again, some, some contextual information so you know where we are. Um, we talked about how chapters 6 and 7 are a large parenthetical insert between chapters 5 and 8 where Paul talks about the assurance of our salvation. And in chapter 5, he talks about the, ins- the assurance of our salvation uh, through the idea that we have peace with God. Prior to Christ being in our lives, we were at war with God, but now Jesus has come into our lives, He's invaded our lives, He has, he has transformed our hearts, and now we have peace with God. And so along with that peace with God comes all of these privileges and these, and these benefits and, and, and we have hope and we have assurance and we, have, uh, we, we get to stand in His grace and, and we even have a new supernatural understanding of the suffering that occurs in our lives. And he talks all about that in, in chapter 5 and then in chapter 8, just looking ahead a few weeks, in chapter 8 he starts with uh, chapter 8, verse 1, which is, m- many people love this verse, where Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation whatsoever in your life. That is an assurance, a promise made by God through His Son, Jesus Christ, in your life. And then at the end of that chapter, chapter 8, uh, Paul talks about the fact that nothing There is nothing in the universe that can separate us from the love of God. So 5 and 8 are all about our assurances of salvation, which therefore is going to certainly generate some questions. And Paul anticipates those questions, and he deals with those questions in chapters 6 and 7. And that's where we get this parenthetical insert. So uh, in chapter 6, we dealt with two questions about sin. Well, if, if sin abounds all the more, and that makes grace abound all the more, why not just go on sinning that grace might abound? That's one of the questions we dealt with in chapter 6. And then another question we dealt with in chapter 6 was this idea that, that well, sin must not be important anymore if we've died to sin and it, and, it, and it no longer reigns in our life. So it's not important, so we shouldn't even worry about it or talk about it. It's even okay if we do it. And Paul uh, deals with that question. In chapter 7, he deals with the question of the law and our relationship with the law. Because we, we have died in Christ, therefore now we've died to the law, 
and we live in Christ, and so the questions are going to start coming up about the law and whether or not the law is good. In fact, uh, some would question if the law is even bad or even sinful, or if the law is even relevant to us at all because it has died because it's been abolished or, 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 or we no longer have this relationship to it. And so Paul deals with that all throughout chapter 7. And one of the challenges we have of chapter 7, <clears throat> for those of you who are new, Redemption Church is one church with seven congregations. And we get together every week in what's known as the preaching collective. And we talk about what we're going to talk about on Sunday morning. And one of the challenges with chapter 7 is that many of us wanted to be able to just teach on chapter 7 as one unit because it's, it's one big unit that deals with this issue uh, of the law. But there's just too much there, so we have to break it down. And so we're breaking it down into three weeks. And so here's what I would encourage you to do. Be here every week. Because what I say today is going to directly affect what I have to say next week and will directly affect what I have to say the following week when we deal with the last half of chapter 7. And if you can't be here, which we understand the vicissitudes of life, it's a problem, sometimes you can't be here, please go on the website and get the podcast because all of this just relates and flows together. So, so it's really important that, that you understand that verse 7 really hangs together in that regard. So now let's just dive into these first six verses. And these first six verses actually refer back to chapter 6, verse 14, where Paul says that those who are in Christ are not under law, but are now under grace. In other words, the gospel is now our Lord. Jesus, the gospel, is now our Lord, our master. It is the gospel that we are yoked to. I want to talk a little bit about this idea of being yoked to the gospel and what a yoke is. A, a, a yoke is something that binds you to something else. So in their agrarian culture, in which Paul was writing back then, their first century agrarian culture, you, you would have uh, two oxen, and in order to make them a team so that they could plow, you would have put a yoke on them and they would be yoked together. And it was, it was the, it, there were these pieces of wood and there was some leather in there and you would yoke the oxen together. So that an individual ox could not go this way and the other one go this way. They were yoked together. They always had to go together, but they were stronger together. But they couldn't go off any other direction. They were yoked together. They were bound together. And there was no way that they could be separated. Okay? So Paul is going to kind of introduce us to this idea of being bound together. This word yoke, though, comes up also, some of you know, uh, in, in, in uh, the teaching of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, here's what he says about this idea of being yoked. Starting in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, I'm humble, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, <clears throat> die to what you have been yoked to before and come and be yoked to me and live in me. And here's what they mean by the yoke. Jesus was a rabbi, and in that culture, lots of rabbis running around, and they would teach about the Mosaic Law. And their understanding of the Mosaic Law and their interpretation of the Mosaic Law would be their body of teaching. And if you were a disciple of that particular rabbi, you had to conform to that body of teaching and agree with that body of teaching and be yoked to that body of teaching. The problem was, was that that was teaching about the law, 
which is really burdensome and really heavy and really difficult and tends to add a lot of stress to people's life. Jesus' yoke, His teaching, His reality is grace and mercy. And so He says, come to Me, those of you who are under these heavy burdens of other yokes, and My yoke is easy. My yoke will give you rest because My yoke is grace. And so Paul in chapter 7 is talking about dying to this old yoke and being yoked to the new yoke, being, being bound to that new yoke, which is in fact Christ. And, and he says, look, Jesus says, look, which is more stressful to be yoked to? You think about it, which one drives us to guilt and despair and which one takes us to hope and assurance? See, the problem is, is that we, we labor under the law, but we love under grace. And then we consider that also, verse 14 in chapter 6 says that now that we are under grace, sin no longer has dominion over us. So Paul is also leaning into the reality that the law tends to produce more sin in our lives, not constrain it. So the yoke is not only burdensome, but it's ineffective if we're using it to try to restrain sin. We're going to talk a lot about this both this week and next week. But before we move on, we have to be reminded in the midst of this, it sounds like Paul's kind of anti-law. And a lot of people get that impression from Paul, especially from this passage, that he's anti-law. He's not anti-law. In fact, next week, in the passage next week, Paul is going to say that the law is holy. He says it's holy. See, there's nothing wrong with the law. Paul just knows that the law has been used for that which it was never intended and with disastrous results. The law was given to point out and define sin and help us to understand wickedness. It wasn't really given to us to sanctify us or to save us. But religious people use it as a way, an ineffective way, to try to contain and manage sin and to somehow achieve a righteous standing before God. In other words, to be able to save you. Paul says, no, this type of relationship with the law is now void in Christ. And Paul does say that the law is holy. He's not going to denounce God by denouncing the law. He would be denouncing God if he denounced the law. But Paul also knows better than anyone what comes from the misapplication of the law. Although the law is good, it is also an overwhelming burden if you believe that salvation comes by keeping it perfectly. It's a burden, it's a yoke that no one can bear. No law can save us. Here's, a, here's kind of a, a modern day illustration of that. It's interesting how often we will pass a law and think that that has somehow solved a problem. We do that all the time. We pass a law and say, there, we have a law against this. Nobody's ever going to do this again. Is that how it works? No, it doesn't work that way because a law cannot transform your heart. In fact, there was a song, a not-so-recent song, but recent enough that most of you will remember it, that kind of talked about this. It was a song by a group called the Dixie Chicks. Anybody remember them? It was a song about a guy named Earl. Thank you very much. You know, you know your Dixie Chicks songs. That's good. And there's a line in there that said, but Earl walked right through that restraining order and put Wanda in intensive care. Remember that? Some of you are afraid to admit that you remember that. I know you remember that, okay? Some of you are going, who's Earl? You got your phone out, look it up and you'll figure it out. You can read about the song, okay? But that's the idea. Wanda had the law on her side, but Earl still broke the law. 
The restraining order did not transform Earl's heart. Laws don't transform our heart. Laws in and of themselves do us absolutely no good. Because of our sinful desires, our sin nature, we're going to break the law. And in fact, many laws actually inflame and arouse that desire in us. That's what Paul is getting at. By the way, if I remember the song correctly, uh, in the end, Earl dies. And so that's a it's a perfect illustration for this passage because once again, there's a death. I don't remember how he died exactly, but he did die. And, and Wanda was then free to be bound to somebody else, something like that anyway. And one other thing, F.F. Bruce also points out, and Paul recognizes, that it was Paul's devotion to the law that made him a zealous persecutor of the church. In fact, it was Paul's devotion to the law that made him a murderer. The law cannot transform our hearts transformation is done by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is getting at. Now, let's get to the text. I know another week with a long introduction, but I want to set the stage. Let's get to the text. Let's look at those first three verses. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, verses 1 through 3 is, is nothing more than a simple illustration. That's it. A lot of people think that verses 1 through 3 are really complicated. They're not. It's a simple illustration. In fact, the illustration... Isn't even, isn't even really an apples-to-apples apples illustration. Because if you line the illustration up with the text, the law would be the thing that would have to die, not the wife's husband. Okay? So you, you have to understand that, that it's not even a perfect illustration, but he's, he's not doing it to have a perfect illustration. He's doing it to help explain his point. And so he says, the law is binding only as long as one is alive. Now that should be self-evident to us. We don't persecute and punish dead people, right? But then he says, here's this illustration of the married woman. And the mistake always comes in pressing this illustration too far. Like I said, it's, it, it's, not, it's, a, it's not even an allegory. It's, it's at best an analogy. And Paul is certainly not teaching Christian doctrine on marriage here. A lot of people will go to this passage for some reason for for Christian doctrine on marriage. There's plenty of other passages where Paul teaches about marriage. This is not one of them. He's just trying to make a simple point. He is teaching about how we relate to the law once we are in Christ. Now, Paul does say that he's speaking to those who know the law, which makes some people think that he's specifically singling out Jews and only talking about the Mosaic law. He does that later in the chapter, but not here. He's speaking to everyone here. In first century Rome, whether you were Jewish or Roman or Gentile or whatever, no matter what, the law was that if, if a wife was married to her husband, she was married to him for life. And the only way that that she could get out of that is if the husband died. Then she's free to marry again. She's free to be yoked to somebody else, but only if the husband dies. So Paul uses this comparison to try to explain the Christians, whether it's a Jewish Christian or or a Gentile Christian, the Christians' relationship to the law, be it the Mosaic law or the moral governing law. So he's talking to everyone, assuming that all know that there is law, whether they follow it or not. They know that there's law. But what he's drilling down on is not the law itself, but our relationship to the law. And that's made pretty clear in verse 4, where he says, Likewise, my brothers, 
you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. So you go back to chapter 5. And in that chapter, it's explained that before we're in Christ, we're actually in Adam. Paul now says that when we were in Adam, before we were in Christ, when we were in Adam, it's not that we had free moral reign, we still had accountability for sin, but in Adam, that accountability for sin was done by the law. We were married to the law, as it were. And with all the corresponding attachments, consequences, and edicts, that was our relationship to the law. We were bound to the law just as a wife in their context is bound to her husband, yoked to him. But now, because Christ has come, we've died in Christ, and we now live in Christ. Our relationship to the law has been severed, just as the married married woman's relationship to her husband has been severed through his death. So now we are free to be married to Christ, which we are. That's the church. The church is the bride of Christ. So if you're a Christian, you're a part of the bride of Christ. You're married to Christ. Jesus claims our life. The law can no longer have any claim on our life, and we've been set free from it. So it's all about relationship. So now let's dive into 4 through 6, which is where we'll spend the majority of our time. So he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him, Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. Verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh... Before Christ, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So Paul says you have died to the law. And it's a passive verb. Verb. It, it, really what he says is you were made dead. You were made dead. The way it's written in the English, it sounds like we might have had something to do with that. Paul's trying to get, a, get the point across that we had nothing to do with that. That was done for us and it was a gift that was given to us. Christ on the cross, that's what made us dead to the law. And the reason that happens is so that we can belong to the one who was raised from the dead. It means now we are bound by grace to Jesus and that, that yoke, that binding can never be broken. So verse 4 is essentially our wedding to Jesus. The, the death frees us to be married to Him. We used to be encumbered by the law, but now we have all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities pertaining to our union with Christ. And here's just a partial list of those rights, privileges, and responsibilities that I got just out of a couple of chapters in Romans. We have peace with God. We have access to God. We stand in His grace. We have the joy of of his hope. We have a new supernatural understanding of suffering in our lives. The love, is, the love of God is poured out to us through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We are justified by his blood. We're saved from God's wrath. We're reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. We have newness of life. We are united with Jesus in all things. We are no longer slaves to sin but to righteousness. We are obedient from our hearts and we are eternally secured. Those are the rights, privileges, and responsibilities. And it sounds to me like it's really heavy on the privileges. That's the gospel in our lives. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. And he says that we do this in order that, consequentially, 
so that we would bear fruit to God. And, and that fruit is the fruit of righteousness because that righteousness has been given to us by Jesus. And we find a listing of that fruit in Galatians chapter 5. That fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the the fruit that we bear to God through this life. Verse 4 tells us there is no law-keeping that any of us can engage in that solves our problem. Whether it's the, the, the Mosaic Law or some other written code or your own personal self-righteous morality. None of that can save us. None of that solves our problem. Our, our sin problem can only be solved by something that's external to us, apart from the law, and internal to our soul, and that's Jesus Christ. And then you get to verses 5 and 6, which are really important to understand. We need to know that the law is not the cause of sin. Because you read that and it kind of, it can sound like Paul is saying that the law is what causes us to sin. That's not what's happening. It's also neither true, as we've already pointed out, that a really, 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 really good law can keep anybody from sinning. A transformed heart is the only thing that can keep us from sinning. Therefore, it is our sinful nature that causes us to sin. We really need to understand this. It's our sinful nature that causes us to sin, but it's also our sinful nature's reaction and rebellion to the law that inflames and arouses the sin in us. Here's how one person describes it. The flame of sin is already going in our lives. The law comes along and and sprays gasoline on the flame. It just arouses it. It It just raises it up higher. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this, The very law, God's law, that prohibits sin encourages us to do sin because we are impure. It's not the law's fault. The law just comes and mixes with our sinful nature and it elevates it. And Paul says, this is what was happening when we were living in the flesh, in the past. That's the then, before Christ. And living in the flesh... Can, can mean many things depending on the context. Here, it means specifically, living in the flesh, it means when you were an unbeliever, when you were unregenerate, when you were without Christ in your lives. So he says, while we were not Christians, our sinful passions were aroused by the law at work in the members of our body, producing the fruit of death. So again, this is a relational statement. When you and I had no relationship to the, to, with God, our relationship was with sin and the law, and sin, therefore, had dominion in our lives. It reigned in our lives. That was the then, and the now is our marriage to Christ. We've been bound to Christ. And, and remember, Paul talks about our sinful passions in here. Uh, remember, a, a passion in and of itself is not a bad thing. The problem is, is that is that in our natural state, because of sin, our passions have been corrupted. A couple weeks ago, Sean Myers used the example of, of mud. Our passions have been muddied. They've been, they've been made uh, unclear. They've been obscured by sin. So uh, a passion that might be good is now corrupted by sin, muddied by sin, and it becomes a sinful passion. And that's really the only kind of passion that unregenerate people who don't know Jesus have. And again, it's not the law that makes our passion sinful, but, but sin that makes them sinful. It's just the law coming and, and throwing gas on the fire of those sinful passions. Now, 
Paul is going to talk more about how our sinful passions are aroused by the law next week in verses 7 through 12. But we're going to get started on it this week because he talks about it in verse 5. So we'll kind of lay a little bit of a foundation. Robert Mount says this about verse 5. When the law reveals sin, one of the consequences is that it then arouses us to the sin, thus calling us to the action of the sin. Why is that? By our sinful passions, by, our sinful, by, by nature, our sinful passions oppose restrictions, which puts us at odds with the restriction maker God. By nature, our sinful passions oppose restrictions. When somebody says, don't do that, there's just something that wells up inside of us that's like, uh, we rebel against that. That's, that's just our, our nature. And so then we act accordingly and, and rebel against that authority. And in the case of the Mosaic Law, it is God. And so we not only sin, which we're going to do anyway, but we sin with greater fervor when the law gets involved. Look at it this way. Some, some modern day examples. It, there's probably something you probably should not look at for whatever reason, whatever it is. There's something you shouldn't look at, right? You don't know about it, so you don't care. Now you know about it because I brought it up. So you're like, well, what is it, Frank? Okay. But there's something you shouldn't look at. You don't care because you don't know about it. Then somebody brings it up. Now, now you... Okay, so it's like, don't look at that. That thing over there, don't look at that. Well, well don't you, don't you just, aren't you just dying to look at it? I had a, had a friend after first service come up, came up and he and his wife were on a mission trip in Guatemala a couple of years ago. And they were in this van with a bunch of other missionaries. And, and they were couples. <clears throat> and they drove by this house of ill repute. It was, it, was a, it was a place where there was prostitution and there were signs all over the house. And one of the wives said, Men, don't look out the window to the right. <laughs> what do you think all of those wonderful Christian missionary men did at that moment? They all looked out the window to the right. I'm, I'm the youngest of five kids. And so I had older brothers and sisters who felt that there were things that I should not see. And so if that happened, they would always put their hands over my eyes. That used to drive me nuts. Doesn't it drive you nuts when somebody, guess who? Okay, just whatever. You can't see that and they cover your eyes. Doesn't that drive you crazy? You're battling to get those hands off your eyes because you want to see that which they are restricting you from seeing, right? That's just our nature. When I was 11, there was a movie that my parents did not want me to see. But they were worried about me seeing it because my older brothers and sisters were going to go see it. And they were worried that I might go see it. Now, I didn't know anything about this movie until I heard that my parents didn't want me to go see this movie. Guess what happened when I found out my parents didn't want me to go see this movie? That movie that I didn't know anything about until I found out they didn't want me to see it, that became my 11-year-old's life mission to go and see that movie. Of course, the irony was the movie stunk. Because I did eventually see it. By the way, here you go. Little little audience participation here. It was a 1971 movie. Jack Nicholson, Candace Bergen, and Anne Margaret. Anybody know the movie? Anybody old like me that knows the movie? One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Not, not, not quite. Uh, Candace Bergen and Anne Margaret were not in that movie. 
You know the movie, Sean? That's because you're too young. Anybody know the movie? Come on. Carnal knowledge, that's it. You're a sinner too, just like I am. (laughs) Carnal knowledge. Anyway, bad movie. By the way, I looked it up on IMDb just for you. Okay, I looked it up on there. It has a a viewer rating of 6.9, so I'm not the only one that thinks it's a stinky movie, okay? Anyway, I can't tell you how many times, especially growing up, that happened to me. It happens to me a lot now as an adult too. Doesn't it happen to you? You're told not to do something. Somebody tries to put a restriction on you. I think those of you that are teachers, you know about this. You know about the nature of people. And it's not just movies. It's things that are worse than movies. And the problem is the world doesn't get this. The world says that more laws will solve the problem. The world says that more education will solve the problem. But none of that solves the problem. Only a transformed heart solves the problem. You think about something like sex education. You know the do's and don'ts of sex that we teach to young students everywhere. Started this a couple of decades ago. Okay? Here's the question I have about that. Has, has this program helped the negative consequences of promiscuous sex in our world or has it only had a corresponding increase in the negative consequences of promiscuous sex? We've got more problems now with sex than ever before while we're teaching everybody about it. That, those restrictions, those laws, they just, it just inflames our passions for this. Now, I'm not saying that, that guardrails aren't good. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have this stuff. Uh, just like Paul, uh, the problem is, is that we have no understanding of, of, of what the guardrails even mean without the gospel informing our lives. It's the Holy Spirit in us that changes all of that. And so that would be a, also a fruit of righteousness. It's understanding, it's wisdom, it's discernment, which is exactly what verse 6 is about. Now, some people say that verse 6 is the great summary passage of the entire book of Romans. Chapter 7, verse 6. And one of the reasons people like it so much is because it starts with these two words, but now. And you know, if you've been around church for any amount of time, you know that preachers get excited about the words, but now. Because the but now is always, this is what you were, and now this is who you are in Christ. So look at verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. But now. It's funny how often the object of how do you really know if you're a Christian comes up. I, I'm involved in a lot of those questions. I really, I, I, how do you know for a fact that you're really a Christian? How do we know that? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. If the two words, but now, don't move you, then I leave you to question if you're a Christian. If that but now doesn't get you excited, doesn't get you revved up, doesn't tell you who you are in Christ, doesn't tell you about your new identity and your your new life, he says, you could be in a little bit of trouble. You should be excited. You should be aroused and inflamed by those two words. This is who you are now. So by his estimation, it is simply whether or not you understand the then and the now of your life before Christ and your life now in Christ. And Paul says that we've been released from the law. That, that word literally means to annul or to be separated from or to, or to make of no effect. In other words, we've died to the law. We've been made free to serve another. 
something that is, that is righteous and pure, and it's all done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says that written code that he used to live by, and, and whatever that is, for him it was the Mosaic Law. For, for, me, for me, that written code was my own sense of self-righteous morality. Whatever that is, it held us captive, not because it was necessarily bad, but we were held captive by our sin, which is inflamed by that code. But the fact is, we now live by the Spirit. And therefore, we have the ability, by the grace of Jesus and by the power of His resurrected life, to live a life that actually honors the law. Paul tells us that he was formerly enslaved to an external code, just like all of us, but now the Spirit dwells within him. The new Lord is internal, and there is a relationship of intimacy. We died to the law, we now live in Christ. The law is not our cure. Christ is what saves us. Now let me make one last point of application as I close about about this passage. Every year about this time, I'm interested in these kinds of things. Um, articles and essays start coming out about uh, the research into what causes stress in our lives. And generally, the research hasn't changed for a a number of years. Um, And the reason that this comes out at this this time is, 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 is because one of the biggest things in our life that causes stress is actually the holidays. And so people want to start talking about that. And so the research actually goes like this. The five things that cause the most stress for us in our lives, here they are. Number one, the death of a loved one. Number two, the loss of a job or a career. The loss of your livelihood. The loss of your career identity. Number three, divorce. Number four, moving. And get an amen on that one, right? Okay, moving. And number five, the holidays. So the bad news about that is that at least once a year, we're going to be stressed. Okay? And of course, if you lose your job and get divorced during the holidays, you're really in big trouble. Okay? Essentially, that's what they're saying. But, but, but here's what's, what's interesting about that. A lot of this could be described in terms of death. Of obviously, number one, the death of a loved one. That causes stress. The loss of a job or a career, that's, that's the death of your livelihood. That's the death of your identity for many of you. Uh, divorce, that's the death of your most important earthly relationship. Uh, those of you who have been divorced, you might think, well, that, that, was a, that was designed to bring me relief, but yet you still grieve that, and, and it's still like a death in your life. Now, if I really wanted to push the analogy, I could say moving is kind of like the death of a place, but I don't know, that's kind of weak. But you can see the theme of death. By the way, the holidays, there's a death there. It's the death of sanity. We spend too much money, we eat too much food, we drink too much eggnog and other stuff, and, and, and we spend our lives rushing around. It's the death of sanity. But you see this theme of death coming up over and over in terms of tension and anxiety and stress. Here you go. When you come to Christ, there is a death that takes place. It's the death of your old life. It's the death of your old relationship with that written code, the law, or your own self-righteousness. It's the death of a a way of life. It's the death of a paradigm by which you lived your life. And so when you come to Christ, there is going to be some tension. 
I, I, I love evangelism. I love telling people about Jesus. I love sharing the gospel. But I never tell somebody, this is the path to a happy and carefree life because this new marriage to Christ, because of the death, is going to cause some tension. There's going to be some tension in your life. There's going to be a little bit of stress. And so if you feel the tension, that's normal, not abnormal. One of the, we talked about this earlier. One of the things that people say, I doubt if I'm a Christian because I feel tension with the gospel. No. That's an indication that you are a Christian. That's a misunderstanding of what's happening in your life. I, I, I quote her all, all the time um, because it's very helpful, but Rosaria Butterfield in her book um, uh, talks about this. She says, It was hard to become a Christian, but that's why I needed His power to do it. That's why I needed the Gospel to do it. That's why I needed the Holy Spirit in me to do it. That's the whole idea of the Gospel. That is the Gospel. We've died to ourselves. We've died to the law. We've died to sin. There is a death that takes place so that there can be life now. And that should cause some tension. And we'll pick it up there next week as we move into uh, verses 7 through 13. God, we thank you that, uh, that your son has come and that we have experienced this death. And though that death causes for us some tension and some stress, it is, it is a good thing to have because the life we now live is new in You by the power of Your Son, by the power of Your Holy Spirit. And so God, help us to understand that and help us to lean into that. And we ask it in the powerful name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.